You need more bolingas. <laughs> Someone's flexing her only known Portuguese word, which is balls. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Happily History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a podcast where we talk about this upcoming week, but a long time ago. Sometimes a really long time ago. Sometimes not so long ago. I think this week is not so long ago. This week is not so long ago for me as well, so... Oh, okay. <laughs> Finally. In case, in case anyone's wondering, we don't tell each other our topics before we go, so uh, sometimes there's a little concern that we might have picked the same one. <laughs> Finally, Kylie hasn't done a topic that's in the 1200s. <laughs> hey, I am a historian by trade. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, what's your first date? Um, well, okay, wait, so first off, I would like to recognize the fact that this week, on July 6th of 2016, Pokemon Go was released. Oh, boy. <laughs> that is three years ago? <laughs> I know, which is why it wasn't part of the fun facts. I just wanted to recognize uh-huh. the fact that the app that probably made us do the most walking in our entire lives was released. That's true. And then it quickly <laughs> disappointed us three months later. <laughs> you more so than me. I think I had lower hopes for it. Yeah. Because <clears throat> I still play it pretty frequently, and you're just like, I hate this. <laughs> yeah, can't get any anything to actually play the game. <laughs> Everywhere where I reside is nowhere near any of the things that you need to spin to keep playing. It did help that I lived on a Pokestop in Boston. Uh-huh. You need more Bolingas. <laughs> Someone's flexing her only known Portuguese word, which is balls. <laughs> no, I know, I know a couple more. Mm-hmm. That none of which are weird. <clears throat> sure. Vaca vaca vaca. Yeah, vaca vaca vaca. <laughs> not weird. Um. Anyway, so okay, so my first date is July second, nineteen oh one. Oh, you beat me by a little bit, but I remember you saying that yours is I, really long, so I, we should yes. probably start off with Yeah, mine. I think we should start with you, because I have one very involved one that I took, like, a deep dive into. Okay. and Don't look it's, at it. <laughs> and it doesn't have to do with Morse code, right? No, I okay. looked at that, though. <laughs> so, uh, mine is July 1st of 1908, Morse SOS becomes the worldwide standard for health. So SOS in Morse is three dots, three dashes, and three dots. So D D D D D D D D. You like that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine it's going to be pleasant for listeners either. But D D D D D D D D. Okay, D D D D D D D D D. Um. So what was S- that last one? <laughs> I don't know. So SOS was first adopted by Germans and proposed on November third of nineteen oh six in Berlin at the International Radio Telegraph Convention, officially going into effect July first of nineteen oh eight. So uh, I was told that SOS stood for Save Our Souls, and I was told that too. Yep. And or also, Save Our Ship. Yeah, I think was the other the, one that I had always heard. The other variation is Save Our Ship is what I, what I was seeing. Um, but now knowing that it comes from German, this oh. <laughs> cannot be the case. Um, so I looked it up and Save Our Souls in German is excuse my obviously going to be bad pronunciation. Redhead Unseer Celine or oh. Celine. Um, or R-U-S, so definitely uh, not S-O-S. <laughs> oh, you mean like an R-O-U-S? <laughs> um, someday we'll talk about Princess Bride. Yes. I actually think I may have the date it was. On your notes. <laughs> I'm prepared. That's right. <laughs> so, in reality, it was just chosen because 3 dot, 3 dash, 3 dot was really easy to remember. That is true. Yep. Um, it was... Also commonized as SOS, considering at the time different standards around the world would have also used the same Morse code for VZE or V7 or even S5S in America, which was very close. What would those, were those all like emergency? No, 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 that's just three three dots, three dashes, three dots, like Morse was different across the world, I guess. Okay. Um, So in different versions of morse code those were um those are what that would end up oh okay being okay yeah 
I thought it was really interesting that one of them wasn't even three characters. It was just V7. Yeah, <laughs> that is odd. I, I didn't look into why, but... Um, so prior to standardizing SOS, QC was commonly used. Um, QCs was actually used way too frequently uh, because they had to make the term Q... Uh, I keep saying QC, I don't know why. Um, CQ oh, was aw. commonly used. A little dyslexic baby. <laughs> yeah, oh my god. I read that like four times wrong. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> so CQ was actually used far too frequently because they had to come up with the secondary moniker uh, CQD um, to try and differentiate between normal issues and actual immediate danger. It was very much a boy who cried wolf situation oh, going on. Oh, <laughs> like how you don't yell fire in a theater. <laughs> yeah, so people were yelling, uh, yelling out their CQs far too frequently, so they had to add D onto it to be like, no, no, I'm serious. This one's bad. Oh. Yep. Um. So, just like SOS CQ was also given the informal meaning of come quick, and CQD was come quick danger to emphasize the direness of the situation. Oh. Okay. Yep. All right. Um, one of the most famous uses of SOS comes from the Titanic in 1912. That? Oh, no. <laughs> um, the senior operator, Jack Phillips, had already issued the normal CQD call when junior operator Harold Bride joked that this might be their last chance to try out the SOS call. Oh, no. Because <laughs> SOS, even though it was officially made in 1908, um, it wasn't... In, it, it was still gaining in popularity right. by 1912. Yeah. So they're like, oh, we could we could try out this SOS call. Might be our last chance. <laughs> oh, and unfortunately, no. you know, we know how that worked out. Oh, no. It really was. Yeah. Oh, dear. So. Um, At least they tried it. Yeah. Mm. Yep. So um, to best listen for SOS calls, ships had a clock with three minute silence periods highlighted on it. Um these were denoted by green bands that started at the top of every hour and another green band at 30 minutes in, and then red bands at 15 minutes and another one at 45 minutes. So it was oh. like, it, there was kind of like a plus sign right. on the clock that was different colored bands. So like periodically you'd stop and listen. Yeah, and, and ev then... everybody would stop. No one would have any communications for those three minutes every hour. Um, the green bands were used for listening for super, or sorry, upper sideband radio telephony signals, um, that operated at 2,185 kilohertz. Um, and the red bands were for listening for the radio telegraph at 500 kilohertz. Hmm. Um, it wasn't until, S it wasn't until 1999 that SOS was officially replaced by the Global Maritime Distress and Safety System. And it wasn't even until 2013 that new regulations obsoleted the radio silence clocks. Oh. At least for the red bands for the telegraph. They decided in 2013 they can stop using the telegraph silence. That, I mean, yeah, probably. <laughs> yep. So, and I believe that the green bands are still being observed. Interesting. Yep. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense because, like, I mean, like, even I'm familiar with, like, how to make an SOS, like, sound. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's something, I don't remember if it was something I was taught in school or if it's the fact that my dad is a lobsterman, so he's on the ocean a lot. But, like, that was something that I learned from a very young age is that, like, if you're ever in trouble and you have no other form of communication, make this sound yeah, somehow on, on, on some, yeah. something, either, like, a big barrel or, like, if you can do, like, a radio call or something like that. That was that was something that I learned pretty young. Yeah, re SOS. really, really commonly people would just get on their, um, like, ham radios and they would just activate and deactivate the ham yeah. radio as if it were a telegraph so that it would make a static sound in the same pattern as sos yeah 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 and i mean since you know it only stopped being used in 1999 your dad was a lobster fisherman for much longer than that and i was born in 92 so it makes sense that i was yeah I so he, he probably regularly practiced mm -hmm. sos because before that point it was still the global standard yeah. was sos and morse code to my knowledge i don't think he ever had to actually use it so there's that <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's that's my first one. All right, cool. Um, okay, so oh, my paper is upside down. All right, so buckle up, kids. <clears throat> I have a bit of a story here. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So I was looking at stuff, and I remembered last week you talked about an Australian outlaw, and so this week 
I decided to talk about an American outlaw. Oh, boy. And a pretty infamous one at that. Okay. So, on July 2nd, 1901, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid rob a train of $40,000 in Wagner, Montana. And then, on July 3rd, his gang, the Wild Bunch, commit its last American robbery near, also near Wagner, Montana, taking sixty-five thousand from the Great Northern from a Great Northern train. What year was this? Nineteen oh one. Nineteen oh one. So that was probably a lot of money. Mm, yeah. Um. Oh, I forgot to. There was um the article I was looking at actually had it adjusted for inflation, and like the sixty-five thousand was like two hundred and some odd, or it was a. Quite the jump. Yeah, I imagine it was yeah. pretty big because I was I was looking at um, <clears throat> the cost when I was looking at the Morse code stuff, and the cost for the first telegraph line was thirty thousand dollars in eighteen forty four. I think is what it was, mm-hmm. and that thirty thousand dollars is the rough equivalent of a million dollars now. Wowzers! Yeah, <clears throat> and there was I was looking at the the trend, and it seemed like there was a long time of inflation being pretty static, and then. It hits around, I, I want to say it hits around the 1900s, uh, a, a little later into the 1900s, before there's just this massive spike of inflation that yeah. still goes on. Yeah, Um. I didn't write down the exact, like, inflation rate for that, for there, but it does mention it later yeah. Um. in my notes. Oh, okay. So there will be a point where I can be like, hey, it was this much in... Um, so, and at, I'm sure everyone is vaguely familiar with the name Butch Cassidy or the Sundance Kid. Both of those are, like, pretty well-known outlaws in American history, right? <laughs> or at least the movie, Butch Cassidy <laughs> and the Sundance Kid. <laughs> there were, <Kid>. like, <laughs> eight movies. Yeah, there were a ton of movies that were based off Butch Cassidy. Um, and, like, two of them, or two, two or three of them were actually titled Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yep. Just throughout the years. No change in title, just same title, different actors. Yep. Um, one was... Um, one had Robert Redford playing the Sundance Kid, and I cannot for the life of me remember her play Butch Cassidy. <laughs> it was like 1956 or something like yeah. that, I think, yeah. Um, okay, so, born Robert Leroy Parker. Oh, my God, I just realized <laughs> Leroy, like Leroy Jethro Gibbs yep. from NCIS. Yep. Oh, my God. What's really sad is that I read that, and until I said it out loud, I didn't make the connection. <laughs> okay. Um, Look out, Leroy's. You're all Gibbs to her. <laughs> yes. Every last one of you. I have yet to see a Jethro, but if I see one of those, I might, I might make that Zen connection too. Uh, okay, so born, born Robert Leroy Parker on April 13th, 1866. Butch Cassidy was a U.S. train and bank robber, and he was the leader of a gang of criminal outlaws known as the Wild Bunch in the U.S. Old West. Um, the Wild Bunch gang performed the longest string of successful train and bank robberies in American history. Um, his first criminal offense was minor. Around 1800, when he would have been about 14, he journeyed to a clothier, clothier's shop in another town, but found it closed. He entered the shop, stole a pair of pants and some pie, leaving a note promising to pay on his next visit. <laughs> Did he pay? I, no. Yeah. <laughs> the the cloth, clothier, clothier shop owner, <clears throat> the shop owner pressed charges, but he was acquitted by a jury. Likely because he was 14, mm-hmm. <laughs> would be my guess. Um he continued to work on ranches until 1884, um, when he moved to Telluride, Colorado, ostensibly to seek work, but also possibly to deliver a stolen horse to buyers. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, so there's a little ambiguity there. <clears throat> so he led a cowboy's life in Wyoming and Montana before returning to Telluride in 1887, um, which is where he met Matt Warner, the owner of a racehorse. Um, and then Cassidy and Racehorse... <laughs> Cassidy and Warner raced the horse at various events and then divided the winnings between them. Cassidy and Racehorse raced the owner, <laughs> is <laughs> yes. what you almost said. The horse rode the owner across the finish line, and that's how it all ended. No, <clears throat> that's what killed them. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, so Cassidy's first bank robbery took place on June 24th, 1889, when he, Warner, and two of the McCarty brothers robbed the San Miguel Valley Bank in Telluride, stealing approximately $21,000 which is equivalent to five hundred eighty-six thousand dollars in twenty eighteen. Ah, there we go. So that's a pretty substantial amount of money. Yes. Like I could envision that money making our lives very different. Yes. <laughs> hmm. We no. have a Patreon. <laughs> I was gonna say, why don't we go rob a bank? But that seems like oh, a bad oh, idea. Yes. <laughs> that seems like a really bad idea, considering I don't, I don't think I've heard of any bank robbers in recent history who've gotten away with it. <clears throat> I'll let facial recognition. Um, 
So um, after they robbed the bank, they fled to Robber's Roost, which was a remote hideout in southwestern Utah. Southeastern Utah, sorry, I can't read. Um, which I par- which um, was a pretty common hideout for them. It was based in like a canyon kind of place. So like there were a lot of like hidey holes just all around and it made it really difficult for anyone to try and pursue them. They definitely also called them hidey holes. Hey now. <laughs> um, rude. Um, in 1890, jeez, <laughs> you're rubbing off on me, Jonathan. In 1890, Cassidy purchased a ranch on the outskirts of Du Bois, Wyoming. This location is across the state from the, notori- the notorious Hole in the Wall, which was a natural, jeez. <laughs> I'm having a struggle. We I'm need to start recording at night again because these morning ones are not going well. Yeah, no, it's hard. Um, so, Hole in the Wall... Or Heidi Hole, I guess. Or Heidi Hole. Is a natural geological formation, um, and it was a popular hideout for outlaw gangs, which included Cassidy's, um, as well as the, um, um, oh no, I did it. I didn't write it down, I'm an idiot. But there were several other, like, pretty notorious gangs that used that area as a hideout. Um, and there was a log cabin that has been preserved at the Old, Old Trail Town Museum in Cody, Wyoming, that was thought to be used by Cassidy's gang as one of their hideouts. Hmm. So you can actually go visit that, which is, I'm like, road trip. Yeah. Let's go. Um, so it's possible that Cassidy's ranching um, was a f- facade for clandestine activities, perhaps with the hole-in-the-wall outlaws, um, as he was never financially successful at it. Okay. Um, fun fact, his ranch used the unmistakable um, brand of a reverse E, a box, and then a regular E. Um, okay. So... If you saw cattle with that brand, you knew they were Butch Cassidy's cattle. I feel like you don't want it to be that easily identifiable, but maybe that's just me. Or it's just a big <laughs> stay away. I actually that's feel true, more I, of a threat than anything else. Yeah, I actually feel like I have seen that brand before, like trying to think about that's it. It's possible, yeah. Um, so in 1894, Cassidy was arrested at Lander, Wyoming for stealing horses and possibly for running a protection rocket among the local ranchers there, a.k.a. bullying them into paying him for protection. Probably from himself. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, he was imprisoned in the Wyoming State Prison in Laramie, Wyoming, where he served 18 months of a two-year sentence. Um, he was released and pardoned in January of 1896 by Governor William Alfred Richards. Um, he associated with a wide circle of criminals, most notably his closest friends, William Ellsworth, nicknamed LZ Lay. LZ is the nickname, last name Lay. Um, Harvey Kid Curry Logan, get Ben Kilpatrick, Harry Tracy, Will News Carver, Laura Bullion, and he actually like was romantically involved with Laura Bullion's sister, who were also like a duo outlaw female gang. At oh, the time. there you go. So he was kind of latched on with them, um, and then did their own thing. Um, and then also George Flatnose Curry. Some of these names are stupid and ridiculous, and I love them. <laughs> like. Flat nose curry mm-hmm. or a kid curry, and then Sundance Kid. That yep. might be my favorite. <clears throat> um, and he actually got so the Sundance Kid got that nickname because he stole Sundance brand um, like horse tack from someone, and that's what he got. He got caught and sent to prison for, and then he started calling himself Sundance in prison because he stole Sundance brand tack. <laughs> so that's what we got to do. We got to find a name that we like. Steal something inconsequential and then yes. start calling us those things yes. as a nickname. Yes. Um, well, let's not steal something inconsequential. Let's let's be the Tiffany gang and steal jewelry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can go to jail for that for a very long time. I'm just <laughs> saying. White collar crime. <laughs> Sundance is a very good outlaw yes. name. Yes. And it was just horse tack. Yeah. How about Patagonia and just steal a lot of Patagonia brand, like, <laughs> outdoor wear? <laughs> I want to be the Nintendo kid. Yeah, there you go. I feel like most kids are Nintendo kids. Just just steal <laughs> just a game. Just a singular one, game. One single amiibo. <laughs> um, so this group of friends became known as the Wild Bunch. Um, they assembled sometime after Cassidy's release from Priffin. 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 Prison. <laughs> yes, prison in ni- um, 1896. And they took their name from the Duel and Dalton gang, which is also known as the Wild Bunch. So they literally just took the same name. I mean, that's how you be didn't, an outlaw. <laughs> didn't change it. Right. Didn't change it at all. 
that had in no way seemed to want to differentiate themselves. So now my new question is, how do you know which was Cassidy's Wild Bunch and which was the Doolin Dalton gang? Admittedly, I did not look into when the Doolin Dalton gang stopped. So maybe it was, uh, yeah, maybe they there took was up no the overlap. mantle after they all were killed or shot by sheriffs or whatever. Yeah. Um, I feel like the outlaw life ended poorly for most of those involved. Yeah, probably. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So on August 31st, 13th, oh my gosh, August 13th, 1896, they robbed the bank at Montpelier, Idaho, um, and escaped with approximately $7,000. Um, Cassidy then recruited Harry Alonzo Longbaugh, I'm not sure that's how you pronounce it, but it's good enough, into the gang soon after, and that was who became the Sundance Kid. Um, so he was not with him from the beginning. That noise you may have heard is one of four sheets going down. Hey, the last sheet has a lot of fun facts just oh, in okay. case. Oh, okay. So it's not... It's like maybe a quarter of a page of notes and then fun facts. Continue. Um, they ambushed a small group of men carrying the payroll for the Pleasant Valley Coal Company um, around on April 22nd, 1897 in the mining town of Castlegate, Utah, and stole a sack containing $7,000 in gold which they, with which they fled back to Robber's Roost. On June 2nd, 19, 1899, the gang robbed a Union Pacific Overland Flyer passenger train near Wilcox, Wyoming, um, which earned them a great deal of notoriety and resulted in a massive manhunt. Oh. Um, many notable lawmen took part in the hunt, but they didn't find them. Um, Kid Curry and George Curry had a shootout with lawmen following the train robbery, and they killed Sheriff um, Joe Hazen. Uh, Tom Horn, who was a killer for hire employed by the Pinkerton Agency, which um, the Pink Pinkerton Agency over time would become, like, their, like, not rival, but, like, the group of people who came the closest to catching them repeatedly. Mm. Like, they, their big job was they were trying to catch Butch Cassidy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so Tom Horn, who was a killer for hire, and an explosive expert, Bill Speck, um, told him about the ha ha Hazen shooting, the sheriff, um, and the Pinkerton detective, um, Charlie Siringo, was then assigned the task of capturing the outlaws. Um, so he became friends with a woman who was using the last name Curry after becoming pregnant by Kid Curry's brother, Lonnie, and Seringo intended to locate the gang through her, to use her as, like, a spy, essentially. Um, interestingly enough, from what I read, only five women were ever allowed into the robber's roost hideout. Hmm. Um, one was the woman who was part of the gang and her sister who was romantically involved with Cassidy. One was um, the Sundance Kid's girlfriend, Etta, who... I think it was Edna. Sounds right. It's down here somewhere. It sounds like a name no one uses anymore. Yeah. Um, and then there were like, there were, so that was full three. There were two others, um, one of which must, might have been her. Mm -hmm. um, but like, as far as historians can tell, only five women were ever allowed to know where that was. So that was a pretty, pretty smooth tactic. Somehow finding one of the only women who might actually know where it is. Yeah. Um, on July 11th, 1899, Lay and others were involved in a Colorado and Southern Railroad train robbery um, near Folsom, New Mexico, which they think Cassidy planned and directed, but was not directly involved in the mm. robbery. So he was taking like a managerial standpoint at that point, or trying to help his, um, let his gang figure out how to do it without him kind of thing, you know, right. like a practice run. Just in case. Yeah. Um, so a shootout ensued with local law enforcement, during which Lay killed Sheriff Edward Farr and Henry Love, um, and Lay was then convicted of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment in the New Mexico State Penitentiary. <clears throat> the Wild Bunch would typically separate following a robbery and flee in different directions, um, later reuniting at a predetermined location like the Hole in the Wall hideout, Robber's Roost, or Fanny Porter's Brothel in San Antonio, Texas. There we go. <clears throat> yes. So we can go... I feel like that one probably got used a lot more than the others. Brothel or Heidi Hole? Uh, <laughs> which are we going to choose? Brothel, probably 100% most of the time. Uh, but that <clears throat> that strategy of breaking up and going different directions made it a lot harder for them to be tracked and followed um, or for anyone to predict where they were going because they never went to the same one like more than like at the same kind right. of thing. Um, in 1989... Ooh, I typoed real hard. In 1890... 1899, I think, is probably what that says. Um, Cassidy approached Governor Herbert Wells of Utah to negotiate an amnesty. Um, and instead of meeting with the Union Pacific, Pacific Railroad representatives like he was supposed to, Cassidy 
The Sundance Kid and others robbed the Union Pacific train number three near Tipton, Wyoming. Um, that violated Cassidy's earlier uh, promise to the governor and ended any chance for amnesty that that gang had. So that's a way to do good it. Good job, buddy. <laughs> yes, we'll meet you here to discuss surrender. And now we're going to go rob your train instead because smart move, dude. Yep, got it. Got everybody yep. where they wanted them exactly, and yeah. went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like you guys are all busy over here and we're going to do the thing that we told you we're not going to do anymore because you believed us, right? That that made sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so after several shootouts with lawmen, several of Cassidy's gang were killed between 1900 and 1901. In December, Cassidy posed alongside um, the Sundance Kid, Logan Carver, and Ben Kilpatrick in Fort Worth, Texas, for the now famous Fort Worth Five photograph, um, which is it's a photograph of three people sitting and then two people standing in the back, and Butch Cassidy is one on the far right. Mm. Um, and the Pinkerton Detective Agency atta- obtained a copy of the photograph and began to use it for wanted posters. Um, so good job, guys. <laughs> I mean, they're outlaws. They want notoriety. They're, they seem true, to be yeah. very good at being. Yeah, no- but I mean, it's it's easier infamous. to be a name without a face. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like it's the same deal with like, uh, you know, like it, TV pirates where like you want. Yeah. It's, you, you're only really a pirate once you got a bounty with your face on it. and. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. There, there's a certain amount of respect that goes along. Like name without a face is easier, but name with a face and still operating is definitely more impressive. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. That aspect of someone could recognize you and point you out just makes it that much more like, I guess, probably thrilling in the eyes of whoever is trying to accomplish that. Like if that's the thing you're going for, I can imagine that the extra level of danger just makes it more fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You sound like you're speaking from experience. Really. Absolutely. <laughs> hmm. What secret life do you have that I don't know? <laughs> um, okay. So on July 3rd, 1901, which is this week, um, Curry and a group of men robbed a great northern train near Wagner, Montana, stealing more than $60,000 in cash, which is equivalent to one million eight hundred and ten thousand in 2018. So that was a ton of money. Yeah. In that, like, time period. That was a ton of money. So, good job, guys. I do not condone stealing or thieving from a train, but A, I'm impressed, and B, worth it. <clears throat> All I'm saying is that, <laughs> what year did we start in? What do you mean? Oh. Your story? Well, Butch Cassidy was born in... No, no, what year did we start? Oh, my 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 topic was 1901. Oh, okay. And this, this that, what that is, we... That's we, where we've caught up. We started with the event that prompted me picking him. Then we backtrack to figure out how he, we got to this. I'm spot. just saying, it sounds like we've gone through a lot of years and a lot of stealing and a lot of money. It doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> um, don't get any smart ideas. We are not becoming bank robbers. This is what America has pushed me to. Stop. <laughs> that was very bad winking, even for an audio medium. Oh, well, I was not expecting you to be looking down, so I kind of was committed until you looked up. <clears throat> anyway. So now we are back to this week in 1901. And so this robbery of the Great Northern Train, what that where they stole, you know, like $60,000, um, would be the last um, robbery that the Wild Bunch committed, at least as a group. Um, so the gang then split up, but a posse that was led by um, a sheriff caught up with News Carver, Oh, News Carver, sorry. They go by the nickname and I got confused when it wasn't in parentheses. <laughs> uh, News Carver and killed him. Ben Kilpatrick was captured in Knoxville, Tennessee with Laura Bullion, the woman, um, on December 12th. And then Curry killed the Knoxville policeman William Dinwiddle, sorry, that's, um, <laughs> and Robert Saylor in another shootout on December 13th and then escaped. Um, he returned to Montana, pursued by the Pinkertons, like law, law agency, and another law enforcement and other law enforcement officers where he shot and killed rancher James Winters in retaliation for killing his brother, brother Johnny years before. Um, so revenge, bank robbery, the story has it all. Well, gotta, gotta make your last stand. So it's right, like, oh yeah. man, I'm Let gonna... me just take the guy who killed my brother with me. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting chased uh, real far. What are What's my laundry list yeah. of things to clean and up? And I mean, that wasn't even Cassidy. That was just one of his yeah, gang yeah. members. So he was, he killed that dude and kept running. Yep. Um... As far as I can tell, I don't know if he actually ever got caught. <laughs> he was not my focus. Um, so Cassidy and the Sundance Kid fled to New York City, and then on to Buenos Aires, Argentina, um, aboard the British steamliner Herminius, um, 
along with um, Longba, the Sinai's kids. I just call him like the kid. The kid. But the kid is enough. Is the, other yeah, outlaws. Yeah, the kid. Whatever. <laughs> Who also did something this week? <laughs> oh. Yeah, really the kid was caught this week. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, eh, what was he doing? Oh, so um, the Sundance Kid brought his companion at a place, um, and then Cassidy posed as her brother while they were running. In 1905, two English-speaking bandits held up a bank in Argentina, then vanished north across the Patagonia grasslands. They moved on from their hideout in Argentina to Chile, fearing that law enforcement had located them. What's really ironic in this is that the Pinkerton, Pinkerton Agency had known their location for a while, but the snow and the hard winter of Patagonia had prevented their agent from making an arrest. <laughs> so they fled just before the Pinkerton ag- Agency could actually get to them. But they knew where they were. Yep. <laughs> so whoops. Um... They returned to Argentina within the year, robbed another bank, and then fled across the Pampas and the Andes to reach the safety of Chile again. So just back and forth a couple times, apparently. Um, and then in eight, 1906, Etta Place decided that she had had enough of life on the run and returned to San Francisco. Um, Cassidy and the Sundance Kid tried to live as respectable ranchers for a time, but it wasn't meant to last. Um, and then, so in on November 3rd, 1908, a courier carrying the payroll for a um, silver mine near San Vicente in southern Bolivia, um, was attacked by two masked American bandits who were believed to be Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Witnesses saw them three days later in the small mining town of San Vincet- Vincetti? Vincetti? Vicente? Vicente. There we go. I was switching my consonants. Um, where they lodged in a small boarding house uh, where the owner became suspicious because they had a mule from the mine that they stole the stuff from. Good job, guys. Um, and identified... Um, notified a nearby telegraph officer who na- notified, uh, essentially notified the authorities. Um, and author- soldiers were dispatched to try and um, locate them. The soldiers, the police chief, chief, the local mayor, and some of his officials all surrounded the lodging house on the evening of November 6th, intending to arrest them. But as they approached the house, the bandits opened fire, killing one of the soldiers and wounding another, and started a gunfight. The mayor heard. The mayor is said to have heard um, reports, having heard a man scream three times inside the house. Then two successive shots were fired from inside the house. The authorities entered the house the next morning because apparently they went to sleep overnight. <laughs> I guess um, where they found two bodies with numerous bullet wounds on the arms and legs. The man who was thought to be the Sundance Kid had a bullet wound in the forehead, and the man thought to be Cassidy had a bullet hole in the temple. The local police report speculated that, judging from the positions of the bodies. Cassidy had probably shot the fatally wounded Sundance kid to put him out of his misery and then killed himself. So a little bit of mercy there at the end. Um, for his sure, friend. sure. <laughs> well, I mean, judging from what I read, they were, like, very severely injured. And oh, there okay. was, hypothetically, like, no way of getting out of it. Yeah. So it probably would have been a mercy at that point just to end it. Yeah. Um, the police identified the bandits as the men who robbed the payroll transit, but the Bolivian authorities didn't know their real names, and nor could they positively identify them. Yeah. Whoops. The bodies were buried in the small San Vicente Cemetery near the grave of a German miner. Um, an American forensic anthropologist and his researchers attempted to find the graves in 1991, but they didn't find any remains with DNA matching the living relatives of Cassidy or the Sundance Kid. In 2017, a new search was launched for Cassidy's grave, which zeroed in on a mine outside Good Springs, Nevada. The dig found human remains, but again, they did not match the DNA provided. So there, obviously, are lots and lots of rumors surviving Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, most of them saying that they actually survived the gunfight Ah. and escaped. Yeah, the other bodies were completely unrelated. Exactly. Um, so the, I think one of the, the main theories is that they were staying in that lodging house and the person that it's very possible that when the, if the person became suspicious, they were probably used to people being suspicious of them. So like they wouldn't have stayed in one place for very long. So they would have moved on. And then the time it took the authorities to get there, they probably had moved on. So it might not even, it probably wasn't even them involved in the shootout. Right. So there's a lot of speculation. Um, one theory involves Cassidy having his face altered by a surgeon in Paris to look completely different. Yep. Okay. Um, another is that he returned to Nevada from South America and lived there for the rest of his life. Um, there's an episode of the television series In Search Of from 1978 that examines the claim and possible evidence for Butch Cassidy's return to America during the 1920s in a series of interviews with re- residents from Bags, Wyoming, um, which is a popular destination for the Wild Bunch during their raiding years. So going back to his you know roots, essentially. 
Um, residents claimed that Cassidy had visited for several days in 1924, driving a Ford Model T. His sister claimed that he had returned to the family home in Circleville in that period, also driving a Ford. Um, she stated that Cassidy was full of regrets, particularly at having disappointed his mother, and claims that he lived out his years in the Northwest and died in 1937. Hmm. Um, and that the family had agreed not to disclose his final resting place since they had chased him all his life, and now he's going to rest in peace. Fair. Which is a very nice sentiment, I think. Fair. <laughs> yeah. And so there's an episode of Mission Declassified, Butch Cassidy's Buried Secrets from 2019, that investigates the claim of an alleged burial of Cassidy at the ranch on July 20th, 1937. So, like, a couple weeks from now, they're close enough. Um, it's claimed that Cassidy was secretly buried at Tom's Cabin, a former sheep herder's cabin located in the remote area of their family property, which was a favorite camping spot for Cassidy and his brothers. Um, cadaver dogs have been brought into the cabin in an attempt to locate remains and lead to positive identification. The underside of the cabin was later dug up and two bones were discovered, which are identified as a human spinal bone and toe bone. The show had a forensic scientist conduct a DNA test on the bone, and it was confirmed that they were in fact human. But they lacked enough DNA for a complete profile. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so it's since believed that the site may have become public knowledge and that the Parker family had excavated Cassidy's remains at the cabin and then moved them to a different burial site, leaving the spinal and toe bones behind on accident in the process. So they think that he was buried there and then moved when it became, like, too, like, people became, like, there were too many whispers and rumors that he was buried right. there kind of thing. Yeah. So as for the Sundance Kid, it's claimed that, um, he also returned to U.S. and lived under the name of William Henry Long in the small town of Duchesne, Utah. I apologize to anyone from Utah. I butchered that. Long died in 1936, and his remains were exhumed in December of 2018 and subjected to, to DNA testing. The anthropologist John McCullough <laughs> stated that Long's remains did not match the DNA which they had gotten from a distant relative of the Sundance Kid. What really happened to Cassidy and Longva is still a mystery. Ooh. Yeah, no one really knows what happened to them. I'm enjoying these, like, mystery ending ones. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. <clears throat> so, like, it's completely possible. It's possible that they were killed in the shootout, and the remains that they tested weren't theirs. Maybe they were buried somewhere else in the, after the shootout. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, you know, like, locations have moved, borders changed, you know, whatever. So they could have been buried somewhere else and were actually killed in the shootout. They could have left before the shootout even started, and some poor souls who probably were also were not doing legal things, somehow accidentally ended up being thought to be Butch, and Ca Butch Cassidy and Sonny as kid. Yeah. And they actually poofed it back to the U.S., where they lived apparently extremely unassuming lives. What really gets me is that I can't imagine two people who spent their entire lives on the wrong side of the law and who actually, at like, numerous times did try to be respectable, like, ranchers and stuff, I can't imagine them successfully living, you know, like 30 years without committing Incident. some sort of crime. <laughs> without getting the itch. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's weird. But yeah, so this week was the last train robbery done by the Wild Bunch. Very cool. Yeah. I had fun with the outlaw thing. All right, so you should definitely pick just a singular fun fact. Yeah. Um, we're just going to do one each afterwards. Um, but anyways, my second topic is July 2nd, 1980, the movie Airplane made its debut and is one of my favorite movies of all time. Have you seen Airplane? I, I have forget. seen Airplane. Okay. It's a good movie. Okay. <laughs> sure, don't call me Shirley, Shirley. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> Airplane on its surface is about a war vet pilot trying to get his girlfriend back and getting a plane ticket on the plane that she's a flight attendant on when everything goes wrong. The in-flight meal makes many people sick, including the pilot, and there's a big storm preventing them from landing. Um, so the veteran pilot has to take the controls and make the rough landing, but eventually saves everyone on the plane, winning back the affections of his love interest. If that sounds very generic for a plane disaster movie, that's because it was intended to be. For those who don't know Airplane, um, Airplane is very much a satire, uh, a spoof. Mm -hmm. um, and what was happening around the time Airplane was made was that Universal Pictures alone had made four plane disaster movies, all titled Airplane, and then the year that they oh, were no. releasing... <laughs> So and like one of them was e even Airplane 1975, but it was released in 1974. Oh. Ooh, so Ooh. Mis so new. We're looking Ooh. to the future for this one. 
yeah, a whole year. And Honestly, probably only a couple months too. Yeah. by the time it was like released and stuff. And that that was just Universal Pictures. There was a big boom of uh, disaster movies in the seventies. Well, I mean, in like the seventies, sixties, and seventies, there were a lot of actual airplane disasters. Yeah. So it would make sense <laughs> that that would be something that was on people's minds. Yep. <laughs> so the directors, um, last names Abraham and Zucker, had. Uh- uh, the Zucker brothers, there were two of them, oh. <laughs> um, had previously been known for a sketch comedy group called Kentucky Fried Comedy oh, and no. wanted to throw a change of pace to the recent disaster craze and would eventually become, uh, and that would eventually become Airplane. Uh, it Oh man, I butchered the sentence really bad. Sorry guys. <laughs> Don't so worry. What I... would eventually become Airplane started off as a direct spoof of one of the group's favorite disaster movies, Zero Hour, including the exclamation point at the end. Airplane has an exclamation point, Zero Hour has an exclamation point. It also has a knotted-up airplane on the cover. Yep. And, like, the promotional material, so I'm not sure who they thought they were fooling with the fact that it was a spoof. (laughs) I don't think they were trying to fool anybody. (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah. Because I think they were doing a poor job if they were. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So the... They they even had the um the movie Zero Hour on set while they were filming Airplane because yeah. the directors would directly take lines, scenes, and even lighting oh cues goodness. from the movie. Uh, <laughs> one of the one of the directors was quoted as saying, "We didn't really have the time or capabilities to write a full movie, so we directly lifted the lines." So. How did they not get in trouble for, like, plagiarism? They bought the rights to Zero Hour. Oh, okay. All right. I guess that makes sense then. <laughs> yeah. I, that's, I mean, both ingenious and lazy. Yep. That's so, how I would make a movie. So that, that's, what, that's what they did is they were like, you know, for the actual uh, content of this movie, we don't really care about that. We just want to make jokes. So new <laughs> so, question. Can we buy the rights to, like, a, a Princess Bride and uh, create our own spoof off I, of it? I don't think you can make a spoof of a spoof all that it's well. True. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're funny enough to do yeah. that. Off. Or rich enough. Yeah, no, I no. <laughs> Definitely not right now. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, so for those who don't know what kind of shenanigans end up happening in Airplane, we can start with a tidbit that the team of Abraham and Zucker brothers knew that the Directors Guild of America wouldn't allow them having three directors. So to combat this, they initially filed under the pseudonym Abraham N. Zuckers to pretend that the three were one person. <laughs> That's funny. Sneaky. Yep. Um, they also had the the uh, pseudonym of Zaz at one point, trying to be artsy. Oh, no. Um, so just Z-A-Z, Zucker, Abraham Zucker. <laughs> Um, however, the Directors Guild of America saw straight through this, uh, it was a rather obvious ruse, and since they were all directors of prior works, like, they're they're well known, um, but their stuff was, um, you know, not not as, uh, big as Airplane, Mm -hmm. um, I I think they fell under a different category, trying to release as, like, an official movie rather than just a comedy troupe, Mm -hmm. um, so the, the trio... Uh, oh, sorry. Um, so it was a fairly obvious ruse. So the they sent a representative or auditor out from the Directors Guild of America to be on set at all times while they were directing to make sure that only one person was directing so that they couldn't give they didn't have to give credit to multiple people oh, for directing. Geez. So the trio sent out Jerry Zucker to be the person who spoke with actors and the auditor. Uh, meanwhile, the other two set, set up a direct feed from their cameras back to Jerry Zucker's trailer. Yes. So between every <laughs> single take, Jerry Zucker would go back to the trailer, talk with the <laughs> other two directors, and then come back out. That's sneaky, and I love it. <laughs> yep. So eventually the auditors caught on, and the persistence of the trio would make them cave in, and they sold them a one-time license to have three directors on one movie. Is it... No, is it because they have to... Oh, you know what? We have to take all that off is it because would they have had to like give extra money for each director build? No, it was just a a rule of the Directors Guild of America, just like the Screen Actors Guild won't uh, Star Wars movies um, originally weren't, I don't know if it's still the case, but they originally were not allowed to win any awards because the format for the Screen Actors Guild and anyone who was a part of it um, I think it was the Screen Actors Guild, might be the, I, I don't know, there's a bunch of different guilds and organizations that yeah, control yeah. how movies are made, um, but the the format for movies is you have to have an opening, 
um, an opening title sequence that shows the oh. director, the um, and just like some okay. executive producer, some of the lead names. Right. You have to have that in a movie um, for it to be considered for awards. And because Star Wars opens with the opening scrawl, it disqualified them for every award. Well, so, that's dumb. So there, there's a, there's a, you know, all of all these different places, and at this time it would be the Directors Guild of America. Um, they decided that you were not qualified for anything or couldn't release as part of the Directors Guild of America, like you know, because they're all directors, so they're right, all part yeah. of it. That you have to be accredited on movies that you direct, and that there can only be one director per movie. I still don't understand why there can only be one director per movie. That just seems like a very arbitrary rule. I, I have to imagine it has something to do with legal issues where if like Maybe. something happens trying to split the royalties between directors and oh, maybe, probably getting yeah. dirty. It's I don't probably know. Probably like a financial gain kind of like thing. Yeah, so I I don't I don't know how it works. <laughs> I didn't look into that, but they were very much trying to make it so that these guys couldn't direct the movie all three at a time. All right, fair. Not really fair, but I get it. <laughs> yep. So now let's take a deeper dive into the genius that these three concocted. Oh, no. The first thing that they did was they immediately cast people who were already actors in disaster movies. Oh, good. Okay, good choices. So Robert Stack was an aerial gunnery officer in the Navy during World War II. He acted as a pilot in movies To Be or Not To Be, Eagle Squadron, Fighter Squadron, and also did westerns and romance and played oh. roles alongside John Wayne. Okay. Uh, Interesting. So Robert Sack was a very serious actor. Yeah. Um, Leslie Nielsen, who was in movies such as The Poseidon Adventure, Millions Will Die, and City on Fire, and Threshold, The Blue Angels Experience, was also cast. Um, Peter Grave, uh, likely most famous for the original missile Mission Impossible TV series, also starred in The President's Plane is Missing and SSS Death Flight. And Lloyd Bridges played a pilot or a soldier 22 times in movies alone before Airplane. <laughs> wow. And he did a lot of TV series as well. So all of these people were ex were fairly respected. I won't say incredibly respected because uh, I don't think, um, I think specifically Leslie Nielsen's career wasn't super great before Airplane. He just, Jeez. he did a lot, but it wasn't, he wasn't that well known. Um, but the others were all very well known actors that all played in very hmm. serious roles. Uh, and none of them had ever done comedy before Airplane. Interesting. I feel like that could have been a huge risk if none of them were involved in comedy. Yeah. So um, <laughs> the the directors were um, quoted as saying that um, that these these four people, while never comedians, had always been more funny than than the comedians of the time. Okay, all right. So they either really disliked comedians of the time, or so. they really liked these guys' personas yeah. outside of acting. And I will say that, like, a lot of the delivery in the movie, the humor comes from the fact that these, like, ridiculous lines or events are being delivered completely stone-faced. Yeah, just completely deadpan yeah. by these very serious actors yeah. with these very, like, so I, very actory voices. Yeah, <laughs> like, so I can, I can see how it, how it, like, could, how it panned out, because, like, it's funny. It's yeah. an extremely funny movie. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like, boy, did they all excel at deadpan comedy. Uh, one of the most famous lines Kylie quoted earlier I is um, someone talking with uh, one, of, one of the other actors talking with Leslie Nielsen and another character asks him, uh, Shirley, you can't be serious. And Nielsen responds with, I am serious and don't call me Shirley. Um, a lot of these lines were ad-libbed. <laughs> So they, it, just deadpan delivery, ad-libbing, the, these guys were just absolutely hilarious. Um, Leslie Nielsen specifically also brought his own flair to the movie uh, in the form of a whoopee cushion oh, that no. he was described as being able to play that thing like a maestro. Oh, no! <laughs> so, so sometimes in between, sometimes he was so good with it that while delivering his lines in a completely deadpan stare and way and... Uh, even if they weren't particularly funny lines, he would <laughs> play his uh, he would play his whoopee cushion between every other word, never oh breaking God. character, while the other actors were expected to also remain deadpan while these lines were being delivered. <gasps> oh no! <laughs> Leslie Nielsen started something that was so bad that it actually delayed production. Oh no! Because Nielsen ended up starting to give away fart machines to all of the other <gasps> actors who would take them, unbeknownst to you know the directors. And soon the directors ended up calling it 
a farting epidemic was on set, <laughs> and they had to delay production because at any given time, any actor on the set, including extras, could have a fart machine on them that would oh, unknowingly no. go off during <laughs> during filming. <laughs> but like that's what made the movie gold. Was, yeah. It was just it, it was like just pure, so silly. It's organized chaos, is what that movie is. Yeah, it's pure chaos. <laughs> so I mean, just like other examples of that is like. Just, when the plane originally experiences turbulence, like it shows like the normal turbulence scene of like all the passengers being kind of shaken up, and then all of a sudden there's a like a football player like collides with another football player, and someone inexplicably falls from the ceiling, and a bunch of girls run by with their tops off. And, oh no! <laughs> and just like this, just utter chaos just ensues, like in just the minimal things. Like it was just turbulence and. It just starts off fine and just goes to hell from there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, there's, uh, you know, another another scene where um, Leslie Nielsen's character, who is a doctor in, in the in the movie, yeah. um, goes up to the assistant pilot trying to ask if they uh, when they can land. And the the pilot res- um, responds with, I can't tell. And he leans down to him. And he's like, you can tell me I'm a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite gag from that movie is the I have a drinking problem and then he throws the drink in his face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably my favorite. <laughs> that that one's also uh oh actually fun fact about him, uh I forget his first name. His last name's Hayes. He was actually a pilot. Oh. <laughs> um the the main character that they hired who was the the veteran pilot was actually a pilot. Um, oh, and wow. he was a almost completely unknown actor when they hired him. Um, they hired him just just because he was getting into acting and he was a pilot. <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right. And it, wor- it worked out pretty well. Yeah, he was. I really enjoyed yeah. that part. <laughs> and I, I also enjoyed how every time he would go into his uh, like PTSD flashbacks oh, yeah. or just flashback scenes in general, whoever he was talking to by the time he would come out of the flashback would be dead. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just like a pile of bones or, mm-hmm. <laughs> again, from inexplicably, uh, you know, dark humor, but hung themselves while in the yeah. plane seat. So, like, you just see the feet, like, dangling off, like, dangling from the top of the camera. And they're like, no plane has that head height. No. But, like, that was something that they did because they could. Yeah. Um, the first time I showed this to one of my roommates in college, he had never seen Airplane. Oh, no. Um, he, he thought it was pretty funny throughout. But the line that got him was there's two kids just known as coffee drinking boy and coffee drinking girl in mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, and the one of the flight attendants goes up to them and asks uh, if they would like any cream for their coffee. And the boy says no. And the little girl looks at the flight attendant and says, no, I take my coffee black and then looks directly at the camera just like my men. And then the scene cuts. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like a, a like 10 or 12 year old girl. Like, oh my gosh. It's bad. Oh. <laughs> this, this is definitely not a PC movie in any no. terms, but it, it's some of, some of these jokes, uh, I, not even just the jokes, just the way the movie was delivered. Uh, it, it was decided that this was a cultural, uh, a, a cultural, like, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a point that, culture needs to remember in the future Mm -hmm. and this movie is documented in the library of congress oh wow for a spoof comedy that's really impressive yeah Um, yeah that's very impressive yeah but man i i love this movie um roger ebert uh, as you know hopefully many know or is like one of the best or was one of the best film critics ever described Mm -hmm. the movie as sophomoric obvious predictable and corny uh these were all words he usually used to berate movies but in this case he continued the reason it's funny is frequently because it's sophomore predictable and corny. Yeah. the I definitely, when I watched it, the appeal of it kind of definitely stemmed from the fact that it was absolutely real, ridiculous and outrageous. And, like, you could kind of see what was coming. Like, you knew what was going to happen, but, like, you had to watch it anyway. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> if you have not seen Airplane, you should go see Airplane. Air, Air, it's hysterical. It's amazing. It's um, such a good movie. Even as far as uh, 2007, it was ranked the second best comedy of all time in U- in the UK. Right oh, behind wow. Right behind Monty Python's uh, Life of Brian. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yep. <laughs> Especially for the UK. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for the for the UK, when you have giants like Monty Monty Python... And you rank a, an American movie yeah. over yeah. all of the other Monty Python things that they've done. That's pretty impressive. It's very impressive. Yeah, that was. It's oh God, it's such a good movie. I haven't seen it in forever, 
We should watch that. We should we should definitely <laughs> rewatch Airplane. Oh my god, Airplane is so good. It was on Netflix for a while. Yeah. I don't know if it still is though. I don't think so. Yeah. Um but uh all the crazy thing about Airplane was all these serious actors largely did comedy after doing Airplane. Oh, a lot wow. of, a lot of them stopped doing serious roles after <laughs> yeah. after they did Airplane because they just transition. had Yeah, they just had so much fun doing it. They just kept going. I mean, specifically Leslie Nielsen did The Naked Gun, The Naked Gun uh, two and a half, the yep. naked gun, 33 in the third. <laughs> 33 in the third, okay. Yeah, uh, police squad, like, Leslie Nielsen just went full into this. Yeah. It was, he just realized that this this was his his thing. Um, That's really funny. I also loved in the movie, um, what, was, what was his name again? Um, Lloyd Bridges, the guy who played, like, the 22 different uh, pilots or soldiers in other movies. Uh, he was the... Um, air control officer in in the movie so every time something else would go wrong they would cut back to him and he would try and help along the plane and every time they cut back to him at the after he tried to help the plane he would he would say just oh boy this was a bad day to quit smoking and then the next time they cut back to him he'd be like oh this was a bad week to quit drinking oh this was a bad week to quit amphetamines oh this was a bad time to stop sniffing glue yep. like he just kept <laughs> kept riffing on it over and over and over again yeah Oh, that movie's so good. <laughs> oh, I, I loved it. But anyways, yeah, Airplane came out this week in 1980. Nice. Yep. That's that's a good one. That was a very good one. Yeah. Really want to watch Airplane again now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's going to do it for us. Um, I hope you learned something this week, guys. I hope you watch Airplane. <laughs> I hope, yes. I If you learned anything from this episode, watch Airplane. It's key. Also, don't rob trains. I yeah, guess don't rob trains. Thing. Watch airplane and don't rob some trains. Yeah, we've, don't we've, rob airplanes either. That usually doesn't end well either. So no, I can't imagine. Don't do that. Well, I DB we'll, Cooper. Yeah, DB Cooper. Ev- but, eventually, we'll talk but about him. He didn't actually rob the airplane. Right. So <laughs> his escape was on an airplane. Yes, and his threats were all made via airplane. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I guess that's gonna do it for us. Um, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History, no hyphens. Um, you can our website is Halfwit hyphen history at dot com dot com that's how websites work kylie (laughs) oh wow all right clearly mornings are not a great time for me yeah so website is halfwit dash history dot com yep patreon you can find us at halfwit pod yep and our gmail is halfwitpod at gmail.com yep so if you have any suggestions any topic ideas anything like that or if you just want to say hi um, feel free to send us a message. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for the use of our theme song. Uh, or, mm, thank you to The Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. Um, yeah, check out his stuff on SoundCloud. Yeah, some it's pretty good. We've listened to a couple of different things on there, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So, fun facts. I see you have one of my fun facts do you want to do, you wanna do yours? You should do, no, you should do that one. <laughs> oh, I didn't do I didn't read into it, so if you did. Oh, no, I didn't. Well, no, I didn't really read into it. That's fine. We really only have time for one each anyways. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so July 2nd, 1843, a newspaper clipping had a title that was Alligator Falls from Sky During Thunderstorm, and that happened in Charleston, <laughs> South Carolina. Um, I guess I did read into a little bit more than you. It's believed that a stra- that strange incident happened when a water spout carried an alligator from a body of water and dropped in the city. So oh like my a god! Tornado or That's, something yeah. like that essentially picked up this alligator, moved it across the like across the state or whatever, and then just dropped it into the middle of the city. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a newspaper headline. Whoopsies. Um, all right. So my fun fact is that on July third, nineteen eighty five, Back to the Future was released. Oh. Yeah, so <clears throat> since our first episode you mentioned getting on this DeLorean. Yep. Um yeah, Back to the Future was released July third, nineteen eighty five, um, featuring said infamous nineteen eighty one DeLorean DMC twelve, which functioned as the time machine. Do you know why DeLoreans don't don't uh, exist anymore other than just not being the greatest car? Why? The guy who made DeLoreans was uh shipping cocaine in <gasps> them. <laughs> Whoopsies. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was actually a pretty big bu- drug bust that just bankrupt the whole company. Oh, my God. Because All he, right. he was using the DeLoreans <laughs> as his method of transporting cocaine. That is insane. <clears throat> I think they're also the first cars I ever saw that had those doors that, like, lift up. The gullwing doors. Yes. Yeah. I think those are so cool, but you don't really see them very much anymore. Nope. Um, yeah, so. 
Well, anyways, as always, we had fun recording. Yeah, so hopefully um, we'll hear from you in the near future, and you'll tune in next week. Have a good one. Bye.